Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a lovely chat room, a great group of people. Um, I would like you to join us in there. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right, in today's spotlight... I wish to take a moment to reflect on the nature of joy. Happiness is defined as pleasure, joy, exhilaration, bliss, contentedness, delight, enjoyment, and satisfaction. And felicity, which implies an active or passive state of pleasure or pleasurable satisfaction. Given that definition, one might think that joy and happiness are synonymous. Is there a difference? I think many people find happiness to be a relative measure, happy versus unhappy. Often the answer to the question, are you happy, is weighted by our relationships, our work, and our inner life. Someone unhappy in their job may indicate that they are generally happy at home, but they hate their job. This can work conversely as well. Joy, however, seems to be an exalted state of happiness for most people. We're in the midst of the most joyous season of the year, and yet Christmas sales events seem to invariably lead to the worst behavior of the year. Someone gets trampled in an opening of a store featuring limited quantities and special sales. Arguments can become violent between competing customers for the same piece of goods. Clerks can become rude and discourteous. Keeping up with the Joneses can not only bring great stress, but can ruin the budget. Gift-giving itself can lead to disappointment and grief. One might fairly ask, is this the spirit of joy? For me, joy often comes as a result of pleasing another. Why is that? Most of us have thought about what it might be like if we were but a character in someone's dream. What if this were true? Think about it for a moment. We tend to have so much self-awareness that we often neglect to think about our impact on others. All too often, it can become a world almost totally I-centered. We arise in the morning, shower, choose our dress, and get ready for the day. We know what we wish to do and what we must do. Perhaps we set out an itinerary over coffee before embarking, on our daily routine. We meet our friends and associates and share our stories, but again, it's almost always about us. We discuss our needs, ambitions, activities, relationships, the world of sports, the latest movies or TV shows, 
but still our focus is on ourselves, our own interpretation, our own feelings, thoughts about these activities. We live in an I world full of me, myself, and I. Now, that's not to say that we don't think of or love others, because we do. But it is our relationship to them through the eyes of our needs and expectations that usually guides our interactions. Now, what if we were just characters in someone else's dream? What if we held much less eye consciousness and instead thought of the world and all of those who we encounter as the real players? We are just there for them, just playing a role in a big dream. And our role is only to facilitate their lives in some way. But then, in what way would that be? When you put on the moniker of, I only really exist for others, the world and our interactions change. Now our focus is on others instead of ourselves. This is the world of true service and the world that returns the highest, best gratification. It is through this lens of our being that we truly can enable others. It is exactly this frame of reference that rewards us most for our very existence. I would exhort you to try this lens on for this holiday season and see if it doesn't make your world brighter and full of more joy. My suggestion, remember what's important about the season. This is a time to be thankful and to raise the spirits of all. Offer to help others in any and every way feasible. It is service that returns joy. And don't overlook the awe of it all. Life is a miracle by any account, and that means you, too, are nothing short of a miracle, even if it's all just a dream. Enjoy the miracle. My thoughts, anyway. What are yours, Ravinder? Oh, I think that's a great philosophy, you know, the fact that we live in an I world where there's a great deal of truth in that. We're just reacting and... You know, we're dealing with things as they affect us. The whole idea of us being players in a dream, well, that sounds a little bit like a Mother Teresa kind of attitude. You know, there's that famous quote of hers. I don't remember it very well, but it's basically, um, you know, people will say bad things to you, but do kind things anyway. Do them anyway. Do You know, it's that constant uh, service approach. And there's a twofold benefit to that because, of course, the whole world benefits when everyone starts being kinder and more generous and thinking about others. But there is nothing that beats the happy hormones that run through your own system, too, that makes you feel better, it up, uplifts the spirit, makes you healthier, you know, you just feel better. Interactions just work better when you do that. So, no, I think that's a wonderful philosophy. It's, it's very, pra very practical, very pragmatic. You know, how much truth there is, what the reality is, I don't know, but it works. And that's what counts. And that is what's count. You're absolutely right. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Debbie wrote, I love your radio show. I learned so much from it. Bonnie wrote, I've been listening to the Forever Young CDs for a month or so now. The Platinum CD four times a week while I'm on the treadmill. Eurozo CDs every morning. I set my alarm for an hour earlier than I want to get up, put on my headphones, close my eyes, and listen. And the subliminal ones following the Ozo. Well, I've not returned to 21 years of age yet, but I have noticed. One, I rarely fumble for words. This is a big one for me. 
Two, I no longer use the excuse senior moment if I start to. I'll immediately correct myself. Three, concurrently, I started seeing a chiropractor, and whenever I'm listening to one of these CDs, I mentally say how good my back feels, and my back has improved to the point that only occasionally do I experience discomfort. Well, that's great for you, Bonnie. I like to hear that. How about you, Rev? Yes, I do. I mean, I use the quantum younging all the time, too. It's fabulous. <laughs> keeps me on top. Keeps me tuned up. All right. Now you're going to like this one. Stephen wrote, Ravinder, very respectfully, you and your husband, Dr. Taylor, are terrific people and very gifted. Dr. Taylor knows how to put titles together for one to either improve on something or overcome something, as well as to be able to know how to do something. You, Ravinder, know what titles to recommend for someone needing to be better at something, etc. You are always very helpful, and I always say to myself... You are now running on reserve battery power. Uh, uh, I don't know what that is. Do we have a clue? All right, well, we'll continue on. Um... Where was I on this letter? Okay, and I always say to myself after being assisted by you good old Ravinder, she always knows what to recommend. The very best to you and your husband. Now, like I say, I think you like that one, Rav. What do you think? I do, and I really enjoy talking to customers on the phone and helping them try to figure stuff out. Um, I do. I enjoy it, and I think I do bring a, a different perspective. Lots of people come in so focused on a particular problem that they don't see the forest for the trees. You do do a great job, too. And I just figured out what that little notice was. <laughs> what have we got? We've got five computers here that are up, and we haven't done a live show for a couple of weeks because of my situations. Uh, and so, you know, we didn't have everything actually configured as best, but I have discovered the uh, I have discovered the interruption, and it is cared for. <laughs> All right, Dana wrote, I wanted to tell you that I have been a fan of Intertalk since 2006. The first time I used the Intertalk weight loss to lose 20 pounds was in 2006. I have returned to regular use of Intertalk to help me reach my goals, one of which is to lose weight again because after an illness, I gained 35 pounds. I have been using my old weight loss CD from 2006 but it's wore out now. So I ordered some more things from you in the form of MP3. Thank you for what you do. Well, thank you, Donna. I love your feedback, and be well and happy. Finally, Robert wrote, Good evening, Dr. Taylor. I felt it appropriate to message you. I have begun a journey which led me to your books. Presently reading, I believe. I must thank you for not only the literature, but also breathing new life into my faith. Please allow me to explain. This journey has led me to many different authors, sages, movies, recordings, and the like. Each is entertaining, informative, and perhaps appropriate for the period in which it comes into my awareness. However, lately, I have been drawing blanks, unmotivated, uninterested, and ultimately unplugged from this ongoing situation, which I found oh so enthralling just a short time ago. Then, as seems to be the pattern in my life, someone, something, or some circumstance brings a new, albeit unaware mentor, onto my path. Your works, points of view, and understandings fall into what do I need to know next. I apologize for the long-winded message and hope that it finds you in good health and good company. Well, Robert, 
you know, long-winded? <laughs> Not at all. I'm very happy to hear that uh, that you like the book, and I appreciate very much your feedback, and may your life bring you only the very best in everything. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldentaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook, where you'll find me as Dr. Eldon Taylor. We sincerely appreciate your letters and comments. Now to this week's show. A journey into prayer. Pioneers of prayers in the laboratory. Agents of science or Satan. With our guest, Bill Sweet. You might ask, what has Satan got to do with prayer? I did. We'll ask our guest that today. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. Bill Sweet has always been interested in paranormal phenomenon. That includes the spiritual phenomena of prayer. Through meeting the founders of Spindrift Research, Bruce and John Klingbeil, Bill began to grasp new ways of applying consciousness research to religion and science. Bill learned that the Klingbeils were healers in the Christian science tradition who were doing scientific tests of consciousness and prayer. Bill Sweet was president of Spindrift for four years. He went to Illinois State University and received a communications degree. Quoting his copy, quote, Spindrift research has been helpful in showing that aspects of prayer and consciousness are real phenomena and not just the human imagination. Spindrift studied the positive effects, biased effects, and dark effects coming from people's prayers that affected lower plant organisms. A historical tidbit is that years before 9-11, Spindrift tried to advise people to pay attention to the words in the dark prayers that militant Muslims prayed toward Jews and Americans. Close quote. Bill has been with us before, so welcome back to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Bill Sweet. Well, I want to say it's a pleasure to be back, and I wanted to say the two of the not long ago, I heard a country and western tune, and I said, but that title would fit in with the type of books you write about, people you help. The title of the song is, If I Could Give You Anything, I'd Give You Back Yourself. That's a great one. That is a Isn't great that line. Great? Yeah, that, that is a great line. Yeah, it's a great back. It was good to have you, sir. Listen, your book is a very interesting title, A Journey into Prayer. Pioneers of prayer in the laboratory, agents of science or Satan. What has Satan got to do with prayer? Well, there's two parts to that. Originally, I wanted that to actually be the main title. People thought that would be too much. What happened is, is that people who know about our work at Spindler either think that we are doing scientific work or we're doing the work of Satan. They get really upset at the idea of testing a sacred subject such as prayer, taking people in the laboratory and testing their prayers. And that's uh, where basically it came from, too. But the, the derivative of that is, is that, in fact, in our research, when we studied different styles of prayers from different backgrounds, we found, indeed, that some people do pray in an evil way, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes intentionally. And sometimes, as you probably know, people sometimes do evil in the name of good. They think they're doing the right thing. So we found all these different types of motivations uh, flowing through people's prayers. And so uh, that's how the Satan part of it comes into it. Let me ask you this, because a lot of what you did, uh, or a lot of the research um, that's been done uh, by Spindrift, 
has to do with uh, effects on plants. So what what are the dark prayers? Um, what is their effect on plants? What is it you saw um, that that gave you gave rise to some scientific conclusion that just because somebody says something negative, just because somebody prays for the death of of the Jews or someone you know prays in some negative way, uh, you know. How, how is it you can say there is science that demonstrates that this has an influence on the world at all? Here's the answer to that question. We found that there were two styles of prayer that we could isolate in the laboratory. One is called non-goal-directed prayer, where people pray and to God's will, you get yourself out of the way and you pray for what's best in the situation, or you just express love toward what you're praying for. You try to keep your ego and your agenda and what you want to happen out of the picture. That is a prayer that doesn't go wrong. If it works, it doesn't go wrong. The other type of prayer, which most people pray, is we term goal-directed prayer, where people have a goal in mind. In the Christian religion, that's called petitionary prayers, when you ask for something specific to happen. The problem with goal-directed prayer, it's it's often problematic and kind of has to do with how you fit into the culture. A lot of people pray for material things. They pray to win the lottery. They pray for their team to win. And a lot of these things get into an area where you're getting away from the true holy sense of prayer completely, but you're still having an effect. And so what we found in our experiments was that when people would pray a goal-directed prayer toward a plant, for instance, uh, we wouldn't tell them what's wrong with the plant that that needs correction. But people, if they are praying in, praying in a goal-directed manner, often have an idea in their subconscious mind of what that plant needs. And it often is contrary to what it needs. And so they're actually having a psychic effect at a distance on the plant, but they're manipulating the plant in a direction that's not good for it. That would be what we'd call an unintentional bad prayer. Then we had other people, because we tested a lot of people, we had some people that could come in and they, they must have had some hidden darkness or some ability in there, thought they could come in and they could do a lot of damage to the plant intentionally. So we were able to show uh, that, uh, you know, some people could heal plants and they had that loving sense of it from uh, non-goal-directed prayer. Other people could come in and they could have a goal in mind and they could have the right goal or they could have the wrong goal, but the wrong goal could either be just what they presumed the plant needed and they were wrong and so they actually do more damage than good. And you had other people that could just come in and they could just wreak damage. So, you know, I, I remember Cleve Baxter um, conducting an experiment now 20-some-odd years ago uh, utilizing a polygraph um, on a philodendron plant. And, you know, headlines ran everywhere, be careful, your plants may tell on you. Uh-huh. Uh, in this particular experiment, um, he had three people pass through a room and there was a Bunsen burner with a bowl of water above it burning, and there was a goldfish bowl. And the three people passed through while he read the galvanic response, the, the moisture in the leaves, uh, assuming that, you know, a plant would have the same kind of galval response a human being does under stress, okay? Uh, you probably know about this experiment. All right, the second pass-through, he had the readings on each of them, each of these people, and they were, you know, there was a response, but it was, it was basically the same. 
Um, on, the, on the second pass-through, one of the individuals was instructed to remove a goldfish from the bowl with a little net and drop it in this water of boiling water. And when that happened, the plant's gobble response was just off the chart. Mm-hmm. Then Baxter followed up by, you know, wanting to know if the plant would identify that person. Was it just responding to the fish dying in that way, or would it identify that person? And so he mixed the three up again. Sometimes he sent all three together, one, two, three, and sometimes, you know, only two came through, but they would go one and two and one again so that it was it was random. But every time the perpetrator passed through, the plant responded. And, and that why the headline, you know, uh-huh. plants can tell on you. You're now saying that there are some people that have the ability to listen to plants? Uh, when, well, what we're saying is that people can address plants mentally, and they can have a beneficial effect uh, or, or not, or no effect. That's what we're saying. And okay. And also, Cleve Baxter was friends with the founders of Spindrift. They were a lot of contact with each other, I might add. And Cleve Baxter gave me a blurb from my book, A Journey into Prayer by Bill Sweet. He's got a blurb in there. We talked right. about him. And he also had a plan to, uh, long ago, you were talking about the 70s, I think, and uh, that's when it was, I believe, uh, it's for airports to have plants set up that could detect people that were going to do something malevolent once they got on an airplane. In other words, terrorist detection. He had a plan for that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I don't know if it would have worked, but it's very interesting. All yeah, right. Well, the problem with it is after a while, more people know about something, their thoughts interfere with it. It only works when people aren't aware of it, when it's unconscious. The more people are aware of these things, then you then you got a problem. Then you got you don't know where the thoughts are coming from. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the important demarcations here for our audience is to understand that you know, plants are a little more sentient than perhaps we have thought of them. They're not just, you know, uh, what, what should we say, um, a, a paperweight in your room? Uh, they, they do yeah, seem alive. to be sensitive to that. But, you know, a non-Christian will look at Christian prayers in the Bible. There are some 650 prayers, I believe, in the Bible. Right, and a non-Christian will look at those some of those prayers and say, "Hey, this is evidence of a dark prayer itself coming out of the Bible." So, did you test all six hundred fifty prayers in the Bible? Oh, no, no, we didn't. We didn't. What we did, what we did, Eldon, was is that we took people into a laboratory and just asked them to pray how they pray, and we would see what happened. We didn't tell them what to do. And we took people from different backgrounds, too. We, you know, not just Baptists and Christians. Do you have any plans to, to test these different prayers that are in the Bible uh, and test them in the presence of, you know, a plant to see if there is some kind of response irrespective of the direction toward the plant? Well, the answer to the question is, is that people prayed what they were familiar with doing. Mm-hmm. So we just had them pray. Basically, you were... We were trying to actually limit our effects to something that w- could be quantifiable, and we found that we were able to measure when people were giving a non-goal-directed loving thought from their prayers, whatever they were, whatever the words were, or whatever their background was, that was would result in either a non-goal-directed effect, a goal-directed effect that either was in the right direction 
the right goal or it was the wrong goal or that some people actually probably didn't get any effect. Those were, that's what we limited ourselves to. We weren't able to go beyond that. But doing that repeatedly over thousands of tests, then we had an array of data to talk about. We thought we were actually getting something. I mean, it would be great to go through and test the different wordings of prayers to see if they did anything magical or not, but it would science would just say, well, just, just show me the bottom line. Is there an effect or not? So that's what we were shooting for. Yeah, that would be a monumental task. But I guess, just for clarity then, the people that came in and prayed were not praying to the plant or about the plant. They were just praying in their their normal fashion, or they, they were using we, their normal were, they, fashion to somehow pray for the benefit of the plant. They were they were told that the, you're praying for this plant; it has a need. And then they may or may not have been told that there was a second plant someplace else out of sight that was a control group. And that's all they were told. Now, of course, people who took the test many, many times, after a while they caught on, or if they were involved in Spindrift directly, they knew what, what the plant needed. I mean, they couldn't help it. They were part of the Spindrift staff. But most of the volunteers that came in were just told to pray for the plant, and they would have to presume what was wrong with it. And, 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 and by, in that presumption would come if they were doing the right kind of prayer or not, because you could presume, oh, it, this plant is is overheated, so it needs to be cooled off, or whatever your I got you. preconception I got you. is. And you could be way off on that. All right. Or if you're praying, thy will be done, you're got getting yourself out of the way. Just give this plant what it needs, help me, and give it light. And then that prayer would meet the need, unbeknownst to the person praying. That's the type of prayer that we really thought was the superior prayer. All right. We, we've got a break. So uh, we'll, when we come back, we'll pick it up. We're speaking with Bill Sweet about Spindrift Research in his book, A Journey into Prayer, Pioneers of Prayer and the Laboratory Agents of Science or Satan. You can learn more about Bill and his work by visiting spindriftresearch.org. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room today featuring a prayer for everyday miracles. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's a great time to get on over there. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor.
And welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Bill Sweet about Spindrift Research and his book, A Journey into Prayer. You can learn more about Bill and his work by visiting Spindrift, that's S-P-I-N-D-R-I-F-T, research.org. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a new interest of mine, and it's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. Okay, we just played some of Norwegian Wood with the Buddy Ridge Band, Rich Band, and I'll tell you what, Bill, I had a little trouble fading that out right where it was because I just love jazz. But why is this music important to you, sir, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Well, one of my favorite quotes is, uh, you've probably heard it, Sebastian Bach said, the aim and final end of all music should be for the glory of God and the refreshment of the human soul. Have you ever heard that quote from you? I have, I have. I oh, have. I just love that quote. And I'm a former musician. I guess I am. I was a professional musician. I used to book entertainment in the Chicago area and had a band. And I used to play that song. That's my favorite song, the Buddy Rich version of Norwegian Wood. And it means a lot to me, just kind of built into me some way. I think some of us all have different uh, gifts we have, and they can't, can't get away from them. You just, they're just there, you know. They stand out over other things. We can develop other things, but some things are standout, and music is certainly one of them. And I might add that uh, I'm also an audiophile, and I do experiments, uh, nothing provable at this point, but I tell you, it's got to be at some point, where I talk to the uh, and pray to the stereo equipment and treat it as if they're musical instruments or musical performers, and I... I can tell you that it makes a difference. Well, uh, I know that. Years and years ago, I read a study, uh, and, and of course, I think this is part of the reason that I have such an interest in music, but I read this study that had to do with uh, the different uh, effect that different forms of music had on uh, everything from plants to animals. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, the study essentially insisted that... Uh, there was an organic form of music and an non-organic form of music. And, you know, it, it talked about some of those discordant kinds of sounds that people call music uh, and how it had, those sounds have negative effects on plants, etc. Well, one of my hobbies also is cymatics, and I happen to have been gifted a, an LED bar that responds to very specific frequencies, and so I can get a live picture of the, if you will, the the geometry of what music is as I play it. So, you know, in one of my books, I talk about things like Handel's Messiah, the Hallelujah Chorus, always sure. displaces a five-point star. You know, it's in your uh, book, huh? Yeah, it, it, yeah it's, it's, it's in one of my books, but, it, but that's not the point. At any rate, uh, in this study, they talked about how, you know, uh, music that we think of as elevator music or music that is the classical music, how it either increases learning abilities, the so-called Mozart effect that I'm sure you know about, or how it increases appetite. Well, you know, at the time I had a, a stable with some 50 horses in it, and so we piped easy listening music into those horses to see if it would quieten them, just, you know, uh, and you know what? It really did. I mean, now this was a visible effect. There wasn't, this isn't a scientific study. But ever since then, you know, I've always thought music is, it's, 
it's a language that crosses all language barriers and impacts yeah. us in many ways. Yeah. Uh, we have cases where seriously cognitive impaired, disabled individuals who, for all intent and purposes, fail to respond to anything. Uh, right. But you'll play music from their era, that that age when they, you know, responded to a particular kind of music, their favorite music, and usually that's music at about the age of 14 that we get imbued by a sound that is just, you know, it's our sound. Um, and and they'll suddenly become awake, and yeah. they're completely aware. And for, for a while, you know, minutes, 10, 15, 20 minutes, they're as lucid as anyone until yeah. they fall back into that state. Yeah. So, I went to a birthday party this year to a uh-huh. woman who was 102 years old. She was, like, unconscious for most of the party. They just had her there. And then a guy came up and sang her. Oh, she just came right alive and just took a rise by, popped over, took the whole thing. And as soon as she stopped singing, she, she went back into it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. Well, And I let's... suppose the music gave the horses a stable mind. <laughs> that's a good play i like that one it you know what you see when you have a large stable you have regular feeding times and so if your feeding time is is eight in the morning or seven in the morning and five or six in the evening horses start you know becoming listless they begin to anticipate that feeding time they're stalled up or you know it was a breeding barn we had stallions and mares and they begin to anticipate the teasing time and the breeding time and so the whole idea with the music was, will this quieten them? Uh, you know, will we stop some of those door pounders from pounding the doors or head weavers from hanging their heads out and weaving them? And it did. It, it did. At least it had every appearance of that. Okay. Look, let's there's get back way, to this. There's a, there's a good way to tell it. There's between positive music and negative music. Positive music, God-oriented music, quality music, aspires to something higher. Negative music doesn't aspire to it. I know, but you know, (laughs) yeah, well, okay, I'm going to leave the music for a minute. Let's get back to your book and your work and prayer. Start by defining spindrift for us. What what does that word mean? Well, when I got involved in the group, I didn't like the word, never heard of it before. Mm -hmm. Uh, The founders of spindrift, Bruce and John Klingbeil, who worked professionally as Christian science practitioners, they were amateur scientists, too. Uh, They were they, they, they got all these ideas because they were working with people. And, you know, if, if somebody wasn't healed, okay, they weren't healed. But if somebody was healed, they would be thrilled about it for a while. And then later on, they would just go back to their normal life like nothing happened. They don't even, a lot of people don't even remember things that happened to them. So it was like all this stuff was lost, you know, just people go back into their routines. And, you know, so they said, well, would you, we better start forming some data. Uh, and now, how's this stuff, how can we show the scientific community that there's something to this? Because there's people rock, walking around who have had uh, tremendous psychic experiences and spiritual healings and things, and they they forget about them because they just get back into the normal material routine of things. And so they started this organization called Spindrift Research, a bunch of amateur scientists. There were about 12 of us at the time I got involved in it. And uh, fortunately, it was right near where I lived, too. I just couldn't believe it, talking about serendipity. And spindrift means that during a hurricane out on the ocean, the spray at the top of the wave that is being formed is moving very fast. And that spray that's moving fast, being blown around, is called spindrift. It's a phenomenon caused in a very bad storm. And the reason they came up with that term, it turns out, is that they thought they were doing cutting-edge research of 
consciousness and the edge of consciousness, the edge of the paranormal, that liminal area, it's a very turbulent area, just like that, the turbulent area on the wave, the cutting edge of a wave. So that's how they came up with that wild term, spindrift research. It's a great name, actually, and I think it's very fitting. But you've got a couple of Christian scientists uh, here founding this organization. Uh, and I, I've got a question or two about Christian science that I, you, perhaps you can handle. I mean, whenever somebody pays any attention to Christian science, the first thing that comes to, you know, a scientist's mind, a rat, well, let's see if I can say that differently. The first thing that comes to my mind are the number of instances, cases, where a child has been, de- you know, denied uh, medicine or health care because of what I believe is called materia medica, a philosophy of Christian science that essentially believes medical science uh, is, is what, how should we say that? They don't believe in it. Let's put it that way. Well, so, it isn't so much, it isn't, it isn't there that don't believe in it, it's that the cases that fail get in the news. Uh, the cases that are successful don't. But this thing with children, the society, this, uh, Christian science was 150 years back of time now. And at the time, the thing about children wasn't as big as it is today. You know, the, uh, children weren't, it was a different zeitgeist when it came to think about children. I'm, I'm glad things have changed. So uh, now there, there is much more attention given to children, and the, and the Christian Science Church slowly has come around on that, so you won't see too much of that. So that's not an issue anymore in Christian Science, you're saying? No, but we, it, it, it really it really isn't. I haven't heard of it in a long time now since it became an issue. The okay. thing is, is that the, the people want to know why do people not use medicine. It isn't, it isn't at all that they're anti-doctors. It's that how do you know where the healing's coming from? If you're, if, you know, if you take, to, you could take a person here who's got this problem. Okay, they take medicine; they're not doing anything. Another person has the same problem, and they're being, they're praying. How do you know that there's any effect from the prayer if it's not being isolated by itself? That's basically what it is. And so, uh, the Christian scientists that uh, get into trouble sometimes. I mean, there, there's no proscription against going to the doctor. That's just sort of a stereotype that's gotten out there. However, there are Christian scientists, like in any group, you always have a conservative end, or some these people are just terribly, terribly conservative. Can't do anything with them. You know, you got right-wingers in every group. Okay, now the two two men that founded Spindrift, they were... Designated healers of Christian science. Yes, they were accredited by the church. They had a, a record to go by, and they were. They were something. They had some pretty good healers. They, they, you know, I have a, you know, some people want to be healers and practitioners. And I think there's some people that are just seem to be born with it, just like going back to music, born musicians or something. And they just, just seem to have it. Did you it's personally witness like this healing like ability? Or, yeah. You did. I mean, people say, yes, of course. Oh, yeah, I've seen people healed, and I've seen, you know, when it didn't work and worked. And you don't hear about the successes. Our culture is interested um, in what's going wrong sometimes rather than what's going right. It's, it's one of those things. It's, it's just like uh, news, you know, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. It's, it's, 
Why? Well, and, and of course, the skeptic might say, well, they would have gotten better without the pair anyway. But then I suppose in a sense, you know, I mean, all medical science, the body is doing its own healing, and we know what the oh. power of placebo is. So I suppose in a sense you can throw it back, you know, at, at the medical tradition is, uh, or medical tradition. But there's, I, a very I, good book. there's a very good book that the church puts out. You can get it at any Christian science reading. It's called A Century of Christian Science Healing. It's from 1866 to 1966, and there's some remarkable healings in there that are documented, and there's doctors that follow through it. I, I like the book. I'd recommend that book. So are you Christian science yourself, William? Yes. Okay. All right. I think I'm considered a liberal. <laughs> You're a liberal. All right. Yeah. Let, let's do this, then. Let's turn to, you know, you essentially... Uh, inform us that Christian science has made three scientific contributions to prayer. What are those three? Flesh them out oh, for I, us, I, I, You mean Spindrift has made three contributions? Yeah. But but the Christian science influence is there. Yeah, well, the, well the, it, of, of the many contributions, the three would be summarized as we have been able to isolate the effects of goal-directed prayer that I discussed earlier, when you have a specific goal in your mind and you project that onto what you're praying for. We've also found that we could isolate the results of non-goal-directed prayer when you just give up and let the love and power of Christ and the quality, whatever you want to call it, flow through you and go to what you're praying for. That has a different effect than a goal-directed prayer because it takes care of the situation, unbeknownst to what you know is the situation. And it doesn't have a goal in mind. And those are the, those are the two two things. And the third thing actually has a little bit of an overlap with your work on gotcha. It's the defense mechanisms. What, when, when the clean ball started Spindrift, what they were noticing was, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but people, there's always a few people that always remember their psychic experiences, their spiritual experiences. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people forget. See, there are a lot of people walking around who have had these wonderful experiences, and they've forgotten they've had them, so they don't think too much about the paranormal thing. But they've had these experiences, and they're all blocked out. So the Spindrift uh, founders started doing research into Freud's uh, defense, defense mechanisms. And uh, through some experiments that are kind of hard, can't explain them over the phone, but they're in my book. Uh, uh, by the way, my, uh, the, the, uh, in my book, A Journey into Prayer, the entire appendix are the experiments. And also, if you go to the website under experiments, you just hit experiments, you can see the experiments too there. And under on that same page are the theories, the theories that were that were tested. Every experiment has to have a theory behind it. That's on right. the website. Right. But it's a great book, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very good website. I have it up on one of the computers right here. Oh, thank you very much. The um, The point is is that there in, in your book you're saying there, there's, there's these things that are these mental forces that are attacking us and blocking us off from experiencing different things. We don't follow through on things. And it's so true. We have the defense mechanism. Find out that we're having this wonderful psychic intuition, or we're having this wonderful spiritual experience, and they don't want us to get too far into that. They want to draw us back into our normal routine. So that we have, it's been, they've done some very interesting work showing that as soon as there is a proactive psychic or spiritual experience, there's an antagonistic defense mechanism comes in and does its best to sabotage it. So you don't remember it. A large part of that, my own research indicates, is uh, brought about by our very enculturation. If if yeah. if we experience something that we can't explain, then the natural process or response is denial, and of course denial leads to forgetting. And 
one of my books, uh, What Does That Mean? You know, I, I go through a number of stories that are about people who have experienced, um, you know, incidents, situations in their life that just cannot be explained, but they forget those unless they're triggered to remember him somehow. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, and, and, and you're right. The reason I think we do this is because if I can't explain it, uh, if I then tell someone about it, I'm likely to be embarrassed, uh, ridiculed, sure right criticized. Yes. And, and so I deny it. I, I, right. I, I hide it away from myself because, you know, again, you know, we seek acceptance as a primary goal in our lives. And yes. it's our peer group that that delivers that to us. So you discovered that this defense mechanism would actually inhibit their ability to um, receive the benefit of a prayer and or to use prayer to their benefit, or both. Well, in this, that's a bifurcated answer to that. The point is people have a lot more psychic experiences, spiritual experiences out there, and they forget about them. Their people are experiencing these things, and they forget about them. That's the point. There's a lot more psychic activity going on than we realize because we block it out. It's our defense mechanisms. And, they, and the Klingbaus came up with some experiments to show how the defense mechanisms work. They kind of tricked the defense mechanisms to reveal what their dirty little tricks on us. Hmm. That's and really so interesting. There are some people um, who have a, a drastic accident, uh, trauma, uh, some autistic children. They don't have this problem. They don't have these defense mechanisms filters, they actually make very good people to test because they don't have these things going to get in the way trying to block them. It's very interesting. Some you, I'm sure you've seen that some people, when they go on a vacation, this is when they have insights because they're been completely removed, torn away from their environment, or somebody has had a terrible accident or trauma, and all of a sudden they're having all these spiritual intuitions and experiences and things, near-death right. experiences. But then, you know, after a while, it starts going fading away and you get back in your routine again so uh, many conversions through uh, trauma there's no question about that let me let me ask you about the protocol that was involved in in your research uh how did you get uh the volunteers that were doing i mean were they all christian science uh started out with christian scientists but then Uh we moved to buddhists and baptists and neighbors and friends and uh Jewish people, we test some atheists too. We had some atheists being tested because we want, you know, you have to test everybody. And uh, we, we tested a Scientologist, which was, was very strong, goal directed thought. They really are very good at directing their thought, it turns out. But we, it was, well, it was, now the atheists, was inter- the atheists were interesting because, uh, well, some of them, the you would say, well, how can you test an atheist with prayer? Well, the fact of the matter is they thought, you know, they have an attitude that, oh, I can, I can talk to the plants like this. We found out that they were able to have a goal. They they can they can have specific goals. I think what is interesting uh, and achieve them. But I think what's interesting is this, this holiness element that comes from non-goal directed prayer is something that only a spiritually minded person can produce. This is kind of an interesting thing. This is like a talent. This is like a gift. So it isn't anybody that can produce that result, and that's a harder result to produce in our culture because we're so goal-oriented. You talked about enculturization. Everything in our culture is go get, go get. Look at how Christmas, you mentioned Christmas at the beginning of the program. What just do it, my think friend. Think about Christmas now. It's just gifts, gifts, gifts. You know? 
Yep, just do it. Okay. Now, look, how did you quantify the type of prayer? Were they praying aloud? Uh, I mean, you, you weren't coaching them. You were letting them pray the way they wanted. You have an atheist comes in. Maybe he doesn't ever pray. Uh, so how did you well, decide? We had, one athe- we had one atheist. Uh, it's interesting you said that. After the test, they wanted to see what would happen. They said, well, how did, how did I do? I said, well, we said, the, the, the tech, I think Jim Klimblow was running the experiment or somebody else was. said, well, you, you didn't get any results. And they were startled. So I said, oh, oh, that's right. He said, well, I didn't do anything either. I was startled. I thought you were going to be some kind of result. He, he, he was trying to trick us. He said he didn't do a thing. So the thing is, is the way it was quantified, and this is explained on the Spindrift website under, under experiments uh, and in my book and the, and the appendix. The way it is is that... Uh, you, you would ma- monitor the plants, and the plant that had some kind of need, in other words, underwatered, overwatered, it was, um, it had, it was overfed, it, had too, it was like bloated or something, or it was, had salt in the soil, something was hindering it in some way. You could measure if the, a plant was, as it was being grafted, was, uh, was going back to its norm points, was it, was it going back to what was normal for it, or was it deviating away from it? It was even away from it more than the goal directed. They thought it was having an effect, but, a, but an adverse effect. So we could have these two directions. We have a, two, a direction toward order that was the, was the preferred spiritual result, or a, a direction away from order, which was the goal directed result often. And you, that's how we could quantify it. You're going toward order or away from order, or if there was no effect, it would just stay the same and look the same as a control group. Very interesting. We have about 30 seconds. Uh, Bill, I want you to give everybody your uh, website again. It's a great website. I encourage you all to visit it. And tell them how they can get your book. Uh, it's spindriftresearch.org. And if you're really interested in the unique contributions Spindrift has made to this uh, negative prayer stuff, uh, and especially the, the terrorism aspect, we were way ahead of the curve on that, go to the FAQ page. Questions 10 and 11 are all on it. It's unique. Uh, my if you go on the website to Book News on the menu, it'll tell you how to get my book, either through Ex Libris or Amazon. Okay, it's great. It's a great read, too. I recommend the book. It's a very interesting body of work. I want to thank you for your contribution, Bill, and for your willingness to share it with us. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show, and we'll join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.